Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I am literally, not figuratively, literally in the shadow of the state capitol in Des Moines in a parking lot um, by some really cool monument I'm going to check out in a second. Well, when I'm done with the podcast, I should say. He's running. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, this week's episode is brought to you by DoorDash by ZipRecruiter, and by the obscene amount of fried food I am going to be eating in a little while at the Iowa State Fair. Um, we're doing this as sort of an update from the road episode. We'll have more exciting episodes of The Remnant with conversations with various and sundry people uh, soon enough. But I figured I would just do a catch-up show with Jack, who's home with my beasts. Uh, hi, Jack. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm enjoying life at your house. Uh, how are How are my animals? They are great. It's just so funny because every once in a while, when I'm just sitting around, I look around me and I'm just surrounded by living beings, even though they're, even though I'm the only human in this building. It's just yeah. so funny. Yeah, they're like they, they they like cluster around me. Even Ralph, Ralph, who is yeah, no, taking Ralph, a liking to something's me. going on. Something has been going on with Ralph, and for listeners who don't know it, and don't worry, we will get to the rank punditry and and audio postcards from the road, as Charles Carroll might say. But uh, Ralph, for the listeners who don't know, is uh, I always say I have we have two cats. We have the good cat Gracie, and we have my wife's cat Ralph, because Ralph doesn't like me, or really my daughter Lucy just likes Jess. But in the last six months, something's been going on with Ralph. He's a little more willing to rub up against me. He's a little more willing to sort of hang out near me. And he's a little less eager to go out at night, which used to be like his thing. I mean, his whole MO was to, he was, you know, he was like a tracksuit wearing Yugoslav uh, uh, disco clubber where he would just like sleep all day and then come around nightfall, he'd head out on the town and, and get up at the mischief. And he's he still does that, but much less so. So, yeah. But yeah, they all do like to hang around the human in the house quite a bit. Usually, it's my wife or me. But um, yeah, what more, I, the, the thing I'm really enjoying. I have a new activity. I call it uh, stretch and fetch. After I finish running, uh, I go outside and I stretch while uh, Pippa keeps bringing balls to me and I throw them. It's great. I enjoy it. She um. She will do that for a very long time. You need to, um, you need to be the responsible adult when it comes to tennis ball abuse, because <laughs> um, <laughs> she'll hurt herself. She'll just keep chasing a tennis ball until she gets like dehydrated or limpy or whatever. But um, you know, as with all things like scotch and whatever, tennis balls in moderation are a fine thing. <laughs> so I, uh, I guess where should we begin? It's been uh, just a little sense of what the road is road trip's been like we spent some time in portsmouth we did in this which we love my wife and i love portsmouth uh we keep flirting with the idea of one day assuming we can afford it getting someplace up around there or maybe in kittery maine which we like a lot and um we were up there in part because my daughter wanted to do this leg of the trip where she's nostalgic about the camp that she went to oh um which she's aged out of she's too old to go and um so she, she like graduated and, but it's still in her heart. Camp Walden is still in her heart. And, um, and so we, um, we went around Maine and New Hampshire and whenever I'm up there, I'm always reminded of the fact that there are parts of the country where, where summer is actually a pleasant season. Um, and, uh, and then we went up to Canada and things, as you know, uh, listeners should know, Jack heroically sent my wife and I, and my daughter, our passports and my daughter's birth certificate, because we forgot to bring them. And it's funny, I just plain forgot. And my wife, who grew up in Alaska, has never taken Canada or crossing the border into Canada very seriously. And she was just outraged at the idea that we had to have passports to do it, because yeah, she yep. did it so many times without one. My and, grandfather. Um, um... Yeah, and so, but my daughter reminded us, and then we the memories flooded back in of previous road trips where we had to cross the border and needed passports. And uh, so it was quite an ordeal getting 
passports and everything sent to us. We had to have you send it to Boston where we did the pickup at the cargo terminal at the Boston airport. And it was very, very complicated because while it was a FedEx same day program, it was not delivered to the FedEx office and the people at FedEx were very confused about everything. And, um, but we made it to Canada. We spent a, a couple nights in Montreal, which is lovely. And, um, and then we went to Toronto, which is there. And, um, and then we crossed in over that blue water bridge into Michigan the other day and spent a night in Chicago. And now we are in Des Moines where, uh, we are very excited to go to the state fair. We're state fair people. And my wife and daughter are big fried food state fair fans. And uh, so it should be fun. And it'll be just kind of weird because we've been to many, many, many state fairs. But we um, have never been to the Iowa State Fair when all of the politicians are crawling all over it. So I kind of wonder if it's going to be like the new Georgetown cocktail party. Well, I'll just see like people from the green rooms walking around at the state fair in Iowa. But who knows? Are you going to be doing Um, any authentic reporting while you're there? I don't, you know, you got to keep your head on a swivel. Yeah. When you're uh, an opinion journalist who occasionally dabbles in in reporting, so if I see, you know, as they say at the airports, if you see something, say something. <laughs> if if you know, if I find out that Bill De Bla- that no one will even go to the dunk tank where Bill De Blasio is sitting because no one cares about Bill de Blasio. Um, I will report that. that like Joe Biden is win- winning the hot dog eating contest or something. Yeah, that would be gr- That would be really fascinating if I was the only one willing to report that. <laughs> given like how little there is to say about anything. Uh, yeah. So, you know, look, I mean, I, I will, you know, I will, I'll keep my eyes open, but I'm not, I'm not there expressly as, as a reporter. I'm not going to try to write this off of my taxes as a business expense. So we'll see. <laughs> And uh, so it's been kind of fun and weird to follow the news in drips and drabs. And, uh, you know, last night the story broke that Chris Cuomo insists that Fredo is the new N-word. What? And you didn't see this story? No. All right. So some some jackwad went up and (laughs) started giving Chris Cuomo a hard time about something and called him Fredo. And Chris Cuomo got all chesty and beer muscly. And rather than saying, do you even lift, bro? He was like, you don't understand. I'll, I'll wreck you. Um, I'll throw you down these stairs. Uh, Fredo is like the N-word to the Italian people. And the thing about it is so stupid. Well, there are two things. It's a, it's a pas de deux of stupidity. Um, I, like, I just spent time in Montreal. So I got to, I got to get my French back in there. So, uh, on the one hand, if he had if he had just said, "Hey, man, leave me alone. I'm here with my family. You're being a jerk," everyone would have sympathized with him, or everybody but uh, jerks who are professionally obliged to just always take the opposite side of a CNN person they don't like would be sympathetic to him. And but instead, he had to do this whole bit about how calling him Fredo was like a racial epithet. It's not a racial epithet. I mean. People, people been calling. I, you know, the people been arguing on Twitter forever about which of uh, the Trump kids is Fredo, except for Kevin Williamson, who just has been calling them Uday and Kuse from the beginning, <laughs> um, and uh, which I still think is awesome. And uh, although Rich asked him, I think to stop writing that in the pages of NR a while ago, and there has been so much commentary from. From liberal I mean, people, people like that, you know, like our friend Stephen Miller and these other, not the White House one, and and, and know, not the band, uh, one. all the usual suspects. Uh, that's right. Um, all the usual suspects on Twitter are, you know, doing search for Fredo in every sort of CNN commentator's account and every liberal's account, and they're finding all sorts of stuff because it's not a racial epithet. The the amount of, the number of times people use the word Fredo. Are the label Fredo referring to the dumb brother from The Godfather, for listeners who have somehow been in a bunker and never saw the movie or read the book? People use it about non-Italians all the time. I mean, it's not an Italian. 
the the resonance of it is about being the dumb brother or being are feeling like you're being passed over um, because you're dumb. It's not like you know it, it when all when all virtually all the characters in the Godfather movie are Italian. To say that Fredo is an Italian insult is just sort of weird, you know. And if they called him Michael or Sonny, would that be an Italian insult? I mean, they're just it, it, the whole point of the Fredo thing isn't it his Italianness. And anyway, but what I think is sort of fascinating about it, not to get too um, too highfalutin about something so stupid, I just think it's kind of fascinating. You see this kind of thing every now and then where people they can't be offended for themselves; they have to sort of leech onto some broader category of identity and say that they're being insulted for their class or their kind or their tribe. I mean, just say, look, leave me alone. I'm out with my family. You're being a jerk. Get away from me. You're bothering me. He can't do that. He has to sort of invoke this sort of martyr identity politics bigotry card. I just think it's fascinating that you see more and more people wanting to go that way because they don't feel comfortable just defending themselves as individual human beings. Anyway, I just thought it was sort of weird. You know, it's funny talking about Fredo. Um, you know, we talked about this a bit in Suicide of the West, how nepotism and favoritism for kin and kin selection and family is a common human trait all around the world and is one of the greatest impediments to meritocracy is that people want to give uh, friends and family special treatment. And it's just something that's wired into our genes and it's understandable. And that's one of the things that got the Corleone family in so much trouble is that they put more emphasis on blood than on merit. That's really, in some ways, the whole theme of the thing. You know, this idea that that Michael would go off and fight uh, for strangers in World War II really pissed off his dad. Fredo, um, who was given these responsibilities because he was part of the family, even though he wasn't up to the job, uh, was a major source of drama, particularly in Godfather Two. And that brings me to ZipRecruiter. Because if the mafia had just used ZipRecruiter, where you get the best candidates regardless of their ge- their genome, regardless of their relationship status to you, they would have been in such better shape. Because look, as, as even Don Corleone can attest, and Michael could attest, hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. So if you had a candidate that was banging cocktail waitresses two at a time at the Tropicana, they wouldn't make the cut. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Um, and uh, so you must be, Jack, uh, quite excited about uh, the new uh, legitimization and validity of uh, conspiracy theories. For listeners who don't know, Jack, when he first came to uh, work for me, was... Uh, uh, it was, he was he was as clear as he felt he needed to be with his new boss about his open mindedness about some conspiracy theories. And, um, I, I don't I don't understand how was, this is becoming part of your personal mythology of me. But go on. Uh, you didn't see your eyes grow six times their normal size when I told you I was going to be going to Bohemian Grove. Um, you were very excited about that. That's true. And I was pretty excited but, about go- reading Government by Gunplay. What was Government by Gunplay? The Sidney Blumenthal book about uh, oh, the JFK, right, yeah, 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 all yeah, yeah. the conspiracy theories that were out there by like 1975 or whatever it was, and how they were all That's true. Right. Yeah. I ordered that, remember? Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, but this new Jeffrey Epstein thing, and I got my, I wrote my LA Times 
column about it yesterday from a park bench in Chicago. Um, <laughs> sitting literally in the one bench over from the homeless guy sleeping next to me. Um, <laughs> Did you ask him to edit it for you? I'm sorry. I thought about that, you know, but um, I'm sure he has some views on conspiracy theories. <laughs> but the Epstein thing is is sufficiently bizarre that people, you know, you can't you can't just sort of say, oh, come on, nothing happened here. I find these pieces, these well-actually-accused pedophiles commit suicide in prison all the time takes to be you know, unsatisfying. So where do you come down on this? Do you? I saw today that the new one is that uh, the Israelis went in and got him out because he was their asset what? in the United States. I So I that one is Dude, new to me. You got you to gotta check Twitter before we do anything. Yeah, apparently Eric Erickson got an email about it, which means I'll probably get 10 by the end of the day. <laughs> Um, so where do I come down? I think you're right. I'll be, I'll be a little more restrained than usual. You're right. I can't remember if you wrote this or someone else did, but basically this is the, what, the Na plus ultra of conspiracy theory fodder. There is, I don't think there's been any, uh, news story within the past five or 10 years even that is as ripe for un or baseless speculation as this one, uh, especially because. So, have do we know yet what's in his sex temple? Is that has that been? Have we uh, Geraldo Rivera that thing yet? Uh, I don't think we have. Although the feds were there yesterday, and um, I saw some FBI guy saying, you know, just a couple of years ago, this was just like any other snake cult. <laughs> but um, no, I, I I don't know. Um, I know that, you know, NBC News had that piece about how they had um, that the architectural drawings uh, for that building on his private island were different than what was actually being built. But who knows? And when you say baseless speculation, it's not you can't say baseless speculation. Oh, yeah, you're right. You can say it's based speculation. <laughs> Baseful. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean, you just like the most high profile federal prisoner in the last you know the exception of what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed um of the last like 10 years 10 15 years who goes on suicide watch and then manages to kill himself anyway or quote unquote kill himself it just it you, you have to sort of go to the Frank Pantangeli you know, the guards were paid off to look the other way or someone convinced them that he had to go. I'm not, I just, I can, again, I'm not saying that's what happened, but the idea that you're, you're, you're indulging in baseless speculation, I don't think is a supportable because it's just so damn weird. Yeah. So th this is why I'm sort of erring uh, very violently against my instincts here because it's almost too easy to just be like, oh, you know, you know what it really was. Clinton body count, uh, another another tally tally mark for that. It's just so easy. It's so easy. Even a president can do it. <laughs> but that, but that's the thing is like, um, I mean, I would be much more open to a conspiracy theory that said, you know, you know, in fact, this was actually uh, Mohammed bin Sultan from Saudi Arabia or someone because he was friends with a lot of these kinds of people. And, you know, there's that piece yesterday in the New York Times uh, by James Stewart saying how, you know, even though he thought that, that Epstein was an embellisher and kind of full of it, you know, he did have pictures of himself with, you know, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia. There's these allegations about Prince Harry or whoever it is. I want, you know, that's why I at least respect the idea that the Mossad went in and got him out. Because, I mean, why does it have to be about Clinton or Trump? Why that's can't true. It be that's, about, all, that's boring. Yeah. I mean, why can't it be like George Soros or, or Alan Dershowitz <laughs> is responsible for this? I mean, he knows his way around a federal holding prison or the Metropolitan Correctional, whatever it is. I mean, why not? Why not put this on, on Dershowitz, who's, you know, a jackass? Um, <laughs> I once wrote just years ago assigning blame to people because we don't like them. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not saying any of these theories are actually correct. Oh, okay. I'm just saying why go to the sort of you know chocolate or vanilla conspiracy theories of Clinton or Trump when presumably there are lots of people who have motive. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm with yeah. you on that. Like, that's why, why limit ourselves? Exactly. Do we want to throw um, aliens into the picture? Because that's always interesting. Um, actually, we don't have to throw aliens. The aliens, but the like, aliens did it. No, actually, let's not go to aliens because he already has like that weird sci-fi uh, aura about him with all that, like his obsession with cryogenics. Like, he may have clones, frankly. If if he, I don't know, that may be what's in. The, I think in the that's temple. probably true. It would not shock me if there's like a boys from Brazil thing going on. Yeah, uh, there, now there's an interesting theory where there are like impregnated just shy of supermodel quality young eastern european women all over the planet um with with you know jeffrey epstein 2.0s uh germinating inside of them i mean there i think there's going to be something there yeah i like Um, this one let's let's be irresponsible and so in, in the public discourse and make this conspiracy theory popular with our platform um again i am not endorsing any of these things i just think since conspiracy theories are basically a work of literature, yeah, I would just like to see some more creativity on the part of people. But anyway, this was sort of the point of my LA Times column, is that it, it sort of dawned on me that the weird thing about this, because I was really angry at Trump for retweeting the Clinton body count thing. You know, just there was a hashtag, and then he retweeted it, retweeted it. American politics has been getting more and more conspiratorial over the last 30 years. You know, Hillary Clinton talked about the vast right wing conspiracy, which I actually have my decoder ring from. <laughs> um, and, you know, she actually set up because her personal worm tongue, Sidney Blumenthal, was an insane conspiracy theory guy. Um, as we actually referenced earlier, they actually created, you know, this whole uh, report about the, the vast right wing media subculture that inspired a club run by the Manhattan Institute called the Fabiani Society. We don't have to get in the weeds of all that. But didn't, um, um, didn't Rahm Emanuel also call Sidney Blumenthal Grassy Knoll? Wasn't that his nickname for him? That's right. I think a lot of people called him that. I, I, maybe Rahm was the guy who came up with that. I've, I've, I've grown to actually have some new sort of newfound respect for Rahm, but we can come back to that another time. But the, you know, and people, this is, this is one of my big peas from the early rehabilitation of Hillary into a first a senatorial candidate and then a uh, inevitable presidential candidate is that um, sh- the media was so helpful with, with cultivating her image in her biography or autobiography or whatever that was. She has this long, weird, creepy rant in there about how uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was part of some crazy conspiracy to get the Clintons. And that's why they ruled a certain way, like on the, on some, maybe it was the Paula Jones independent council thing or something else, but it was a really kind of unhinged thing. And, sh- and it, the fact that it made it through the sausage making process and the ghostwriter and the publisher who wanted something that was for mass appeal was sort of fascinating, but Clinton refused to give interviews on the political substance of the book. And there was one quote from, I think from Paul Fari of the Washington Post, this is like 20 years ago, where he says, where he makes it clear, whoever the reporter was, makes it clear that he is, that Mrs. Clinton was happy to talk to reporters or be interviewed about all the stuff about how she was a victim, all of the stuff about her, you know, I am woman, hear me roar things. But on the actual political substance she didn't want to talk about any of that kind of stuff, which I always thought was this interesting double standard. But anyway, she had this conspiracy thing about the Supreme Court. It wasn't just about the Sidney Blumenthal stuff. And Republicans, my God, conservatives, everything from which I admit I was sort of seduced by some of that stuff at the time. I was in my early 20s. Um, the Rose Law Firm stuff, all this weird Clinton stuff. And and then under Bush, there was a riot of conspiratorial stuff, not just 9-11 truthers, but the all the Naomi Wolf craziness um, and you know, the, the Michael Moore craziness. And, and then under Obama, you know, you have the birther stuff, but you also have, you know, the, the secret Muslim, whatever. And so this stuff has been building for a really long time. And I think, but what's, what's weird now is what makes it worse now is that the president himself encourages this stuff. Every other president, whether it was Obama, Bush, or even to a certain extent Clinton, though Clinton indulged it, he winked at it every now and then. But 
Trump has full-blown members of his coalition who are just, you know, crazy pants uh, conspiracy theorists. And and he retweets this stuff, and he retweets people who peddle this stuff, and he says, you know, I just saw this morning how he's really excited that Kurt Schilling, who's a QAnon devotee, um, is, may run for Congress. And it's, you know, normal, it's normal American politics for people out of power to think the worst of the people in power, to be suspicious, to be paranoid. But it is really, really weird and something new in American politics, at least in my lifetime, for the people in power to be resorting to sort of conspiracy theory stuff, whether it's, you know, I mean, I'm not going to get into the Russia stuff, but, you know, but the deep state and the establishment is conspiring and, 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 and all of that is... It, it, when the people in power engage in that, that means that there is basically nobody policing responsible rhetoric at the height of government, and that just that makes me really, really nervous. Yeah, QAnon anyway, is, rant over. is a great example because the whole that's the most pro authority conspiracy theory I've ever encountered. Because the whole basis of it is that the president is secretly uh working on behalf of uh like and even i think at one point in some version of the theory Mueller was in on it too that they were both working basically to flush out the um the evil elements within our bureaucracy it's strange but i so i have some background here that can at least provide context uh I, so I'll, I'll i'll cop to being more interested in this kind of thing than i was willing to admit earlier and so during the 2016 <laughs> primary i was uh, you, you gave it up pretty quickly there, yeah Jeff, yeah okay, I go mean, on. yeah sure uh you got me it during the 2016 primary i was uh, on youtube looking at uh conspiracy theory videos related to trump and I found one that claimed to be like a an analysis of one of his speeches that uh, zeroed in on his hand gestures. You know, he has those weird hand gestures while yeah. he's talking uh, and like showing how it's, it's actually Illuminati symbology. This is like typical stuff. There's t there's always videos after every Super Bowl halftime show how it's full of Illuminati imagery. Um, so it's it's standard to have this kind of video. But what was not standard is the comments on this video which were divided very um bitterly over whether over whether uh trump was in on it or or whether he was fighting it, it which is fascinating because like every other pr uh, presidential candidate within the past uh basically since reagan it's oh duh obviously he's in on it but for whatever reason trump people are the conspiracy theory is divided on trump I don't know. Well, and and you know, but it's and there, but the conspiracy theories. I mean, when you start looking around, it's the the people who are supposed to be the responsible members of you know government or the elite. They're not supposed to be trafficking in this stuff because they're the ones who are at, look. It's one thing for African Americans in the nineteen fifties. Um, or the 1850s, to be sure, um, to be suspicious of conspiracies against them, because there were conspiracies against them. And at the very least, they were so locked out of the political process and so um, locked out of any system of accountability that you know, sort of rampant speculation is a perfectly understandable thing for them to do. It's the same thing with like the know-nothings in the 1800s who were you know, convinced that you know, the, 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 the Pope in Rome was conspiring against, you know, America to steal it from the Protestants. And, you know, this is and, 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 you know, people think that America has a conspiratorial style, but the reality is that humans have a conspiratorial style. Something in our brain wants to connect these dots in ways that make sense to us, regardless of whether or not the dots can be connected. And we have that, you know, that cooey bono, or the Italians say Che Paga, you know who benefits. Um, hey, that's a that's uh, a that's a racial slur there. 
Calm down. <laughs> you know, this reasoning was like, ah, something terrible happened. Let's reason backwards from who benefited from the terrible thing. And they must have been responsible for it. And um, the whole point of being in a, a leading institution, being part of an elite in a positive sense of the term, is to understand that that's not how the world actually works and to reassure people in, you know, and have some accountability for how leaders are acting. But you look at the Democrats who, you know, they still won't call out, what's her name, Stacey Abrams, for lying, just flat out lying about how her election in Georgia was stolen with, through voter suppression um, and other fakery, whatever. Republicans don't really give a rat's ass that Trump says he lost the popular vote because three to five million illegal immigrants were shipped in to vote and no one seemed to notice. Um, and you can go down a long list of these things where the whole, the whole sort of journalistic political leadership class have all of these pet conspiratorial explanations for things and no one, and they don't get that. No one calls out their own sides for it. I just, it seems to me that's a very dangerous way to go. And Part of it has to do with the thing I've been beating my spoon in my high chair about for a really long time, which is, you know, we st- tend to follow politics like entertainment. And when you see politics as a form of entertainment, you care more about the, the plot and the narrative and the exciting climax and, and all of that kind of stuff than you do about the facts. And that's why the Epstein story is so problematic is because it's like straight out of a movie and it just lends people you know, thinking that that's why, you know, it happened is because that's the way the world actually works. And, but I just, it seems to me this is a sign of sickness and not to like bend it too far towards my pet obsessions. But I think that we did that excellent podcast, I think, with, with Lyman about uh, expanding the House of Representatives. This is, seems to me, is to be a symptom of, of, of one of the problems that, that would cure. If more people, rotated through government and actually knew how stupid and incompetent but well-meaning people in power are, it would lend itself to fewer conspiracy theories. But there's this weird, you know, it goes back like to the Kennedy assassination. Always, the, the, All those conspiracy theories always made no sense to me because they assumed two things that weren't true. One, that the federal government is infinitely competent. And two, that it is infinitely evil. <laughs> when in reality, you know, it's, you know, like or like, you know, it's just the stuff about George W. Bush plotting nine eleven. People both said that he plot you know, that it was an inside job, and that Bush was incredibly stupid. You, you can't have it both ways. Either he's incredibly stupid, or he was the criminal mastermind of the greatest conspiracy against the American public or any public in all of human history. Anyway, I just think it's something that really kind of got me kind of upset yesterday, thinking about how suffused so much of our political conversation these days is actually a form of conspiracy conspiracy theorizing on the left and the right. Yeah, well, I have to say, I think you're being a bit naive because you're assuming that it's humans that are responsible for all these things, but we can get into that at another time. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I did, I did like, what if, what if the medical examiner had come out and said, with video, where they do the autopsy and and the and the guy says and this was particularly disturbing and he reaches from just under and behind his jawline and peels back the face and it turns out that Epstein was a lizard person. Oh man. Oh man, that would be whew, that would be exciting. I, I would stock up on bottled water. Yeah. Um and you know what else I would do because um I would not be going out to restaurants because it would be too dangerous. I'd be ordering a lot from DoorDash. That is the best segue you've ever done. <laughs> um, as I said earlier, this episode of DoorDash, I mean, sorry, this episode of The Remnant <laughs> is, I was, I was, I was taken aback by Jack's compliment, which is so rare. Uh, this episode of The Remnant is co-sponsored or sponsored by DoorDash. If you have a long day at work, tough day at school, you're still stuck at the office, if you're hiding from the lizard people, Treat yourself to the meal you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Or more likely, let's say your sweatpants are on for the day, but you're sick of microwaved leftovers and frozen pizza. With DoorDash, you can get restaurant-quality food with a living room dress code. And when they say restaurant-quality food, they actually mean 
food from restaurants, not just sort of like as good as restaurants. Ordering is easy. Open the door, the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So you might find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, that's promo code REMNANT for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for sponsoring the REMNANT. Okay, so you actually did some uh, requests for uh, AMA. Um, uh, very different from MMA. Um, <laughs> Doesn't have to be. Uh, we'll save the, the we'll 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 save the ultimate fighting episode of the Remnant for Sweeps Week. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, but we you did some uh, you asked followers of the Remnant Twitter account, which is at Jonah Remnant. For those of you Philistines who don't know that, did you get anything good? Anything worth discussing? Um, I didn't have as much time as usual to like collate the questions in the way I have in the past, but um, surprisingly, in my sort of brief surveying of them, I found several about um, Austro-Hungarian apologetics. Uh, like, why? Well, if you are a defender of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, why? Uh, why are you a defender of it? And I know that really? there's there are some. Yeah, there are some. Huh. So the nationalists among us, I think, yeah, you and Rich uh, argued about this at at the at the Ideas Summit, the National Review Ideas Summit in March. Was that? Yeah. Uh, I think well, I, I the fact that Eric von Knudlin, which I've never figured out if that's the correct pronunciation of, sounds right to uh, me. <laughs> uh, and I also believe Ernest Vandenhag and a few others um, were, but particularly Ladin. Um, uh, were defenders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but I don't think I went into the weeds on 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 that subject. I just think I sort of name dropped it. My basic case for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, well, there's several folds to it. Um, first of all, the notion that na- the the sort of historic nation states or nationalities or peoples of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were necessarily freer after the the empire broke up is just nonsense. The idea that nationalism actually brings about personal liberty is just not true, not proven. Um, in fact, it's contraindicated in far more examples than it's demonstrated. You know, this sort of gets to my Woodrow Wilson, you know, one of my Woodrow Wilson points, which is that people talk about self-determination coming out of the Treaty of Versailles and Wilson's 14 points and all that kind of stuff as if it was itself an argument for democracy. And I and I think there are arguments on both sides of this, but self-determination was more about a sort of mystic understanding of how certain peoples should be left to, quote-unquote, govern themselves according to their own traditions, institutions, and customs. And that meant in a lot of places, not democracy or liberty or the rule of law or classical liberalism, it meant certain sort of indigenous and authentic forms of monarchy or of, of authoritarianism. And, you know, the, the, you know, Romania plausibly had uh, self-determination under the Ceausescu's because it sort of resisted the Soviets and it was fairly autonomous, but it was a barbarically authoritarian and evil regime. And the Austro-Hungarian empire, which, you know, look, they have, did they make some mistakes? Sure, but that's why pencils have erasers. Um, <laughs> but no, but the, 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 the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a loose confederation. You know, you, you ultramontane Catholics should like some of the stuff that was going on in there. But um, it, was, uh, it was 
a an empire of free of of I shouldn't say free nations because they were part of an empire. But let me give you an example. My father-in-law used to talk about how the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire dealt a grievous blow to his village in Slovakia because his village was a tannery. Uh, that was their main. It was, they made leather. Was their big trade there, and uh, Slovakia, particularly his little town, wasn't big enough to like just have self-sufficient trade. It needed to have you know cross-border trade in order to survive, and it did really well selling its wares to the Czechs, selling its wares to the Hungarians, selling its wares to the the Austrians, and and all, a bunch of those like German principalities or whatever. And when the Austro-Hungarian Empire went under, that free trade zone went with it. And instead, you had national boundaries and national tariffs rise up all over the place. And that was bad for his village. And there was something to the Austro-Hungarian Empire that allowed for the emergence of this classical liberal Austrian school of, of economics to emerge. And people don't know, people don't know this history too well, but you know, when we talk about Austrian economics, we mean Hayek and von Mises and the free market stuff. The, originally, the Austrian school was an epithet, sort of like how neoconservative began as an epithet. And it was an epithet from the, the German historicists who believed everything was relative, everything was subjective, everything was historically contextualized. This is why, basically, uh, the Germans invented the word empathy which got created in English, like, like, I don't know, 100 years ago or something like that, 150 years ago. And the Austrians actually believed in universal rules, the rule of law. They believed that there was, that two plus two equaled four, regardless of what culture you lived in. Um, and it was, there was a reason why that emerged in Vienna out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire tradition and not out of Germany. And someone at Mercatus, I think, was recently making this point, which I should have emphasized better in Suicide of the West, that, you know, one of the reasons why nationalism emerges is that you have the, um, with the death of the idea of the divine right of kings, governments needed new forms of legitimacy to draw upon to command the loyalty of people. And that's what nationalism became. Instead of looking to the king as the sovereign representative of his subjects, the people started looking inward into themselves for sources of legitimacy and meaning. And that's what gives birth to this idea of nationalism as this coherent thing. And, and I think in some ways the Austro-Hungarian Empire stood against some of the worst parts of, that, of those trends. And those trends led to a lot of bad things and i think that that you know and i'm just one of these guys who always likes you know i've always liked the idea of lost civilizations of wrong turns of the idea that you know there were certain that you know we lost certain things when we made certain decisions as a civilization even though i'm a huge believer in progress and i think those decisions were ultimately the right ones in in the grand meta macro sense I always want to search the bathwater to see if there's any baby left in there. And I think the Austro-Hungarian Empire had some baby in it, if that analogy isn't too gross or too weird. No, I think that's right. Um, or I think that makes sense. I did not see that question coming, so I'm going to spend the rest of my day. I'm going to be the only friggin' person at the Iowa State Fair going, damn it, I should have said this about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> you don't know that. <laughs> um, I can see Andrew Yang having something to say about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If he's there, no, I, I don't I know. Can't do yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it just seems kind of obvious to me. Like, this is another sort of uh, semi-reactionary thing to say, but I, I don't... The, the, the way that all the constituent nations of the Austro-Hungarian Empire just went from part of that empire to democracies, then to becoming um, subsidiaries of the Nazi empire... Like they did not, I don't know if they were quite ready, quote unquote, for democracy in, in the way that Wilson uh, and others assumed that they would be. I think they probably could have used some, some like constitutional monarchy training wheels for a bit uh, before they were uh, pushed out onto the road. Yeah, this also is like, 
I think this is one of the funny things about the new nationalists at the sort of first things crowd. You got all these Catholics who, you know, there's a, you can look it up, you know, Catholic means universal. And there was a time when, you know, the Catholic church had some, some negative views about nationalism and breaking people up into out, out of the sort of the Holy communion of, of, of humanity. And, um, this idea that, that nationalism is the vehicle for a serious Catholic resurgence, there, there, there strikes me that there's, there's some theology that has not been well worked out there. Yeah, in fact, but, you know, I think, um, I might be wrong about this, but Pope, uh, Pope Pius IX issued this, in hindsight, really like awesome document I don't know if it's really been vindicated by the course of history, but it's just like cool that a Pope was just, it's called the syllabus of errors. Uh, he <clears> issued it in 1864. And basically he, he was very much standing athwart history because he looked at every single trend that was happening in Europe and the world at the time. And, and he was like, Nope, Nope. Also Nope. Uh, and I'm pretty sure nationalism was one of those trends that he was like, Nope, not a fan. Um, so yeah, this is to, to your point that Catholicism and nationalism aren't the best fits necessarily. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I, I should go back and look at that. I don't, I didn't remember that, but I mean, I've heard of the syllabus of errors, but I can't remember, you know, I, I would have needed to be reminded of what it was because I completely forgot about that. But the encyclicals about, from the Catholic church about fascism are kind of fascinating, you know, and they had a complicated history there, but the one of the things they weren't about was statolatry, you know, worshiping, worshiping the state as the engine of human deliverance and, and all that, which is a big part of what, what fascism is. And, uh, uh, that's one of the problems you get with a lot of this nationalism stuff is that the engine of the only way to put nationalism, to put, put teeth into the public policy aspects of this nationalist agenda is statism, which is why I want to get Chris DeMuth on. He wrote that, you know, he gave that speech, which I thought was among the smartest things said at that conference from what I've seen about nationalism. And uh, I, I, I have a real hard time believing that he actually is on board with a full-blown statist, with, with, with the, the natural, the nationalist agenda taken to its logical conclusion would lead to places in terms of public policy that I think Chris DeMuth, who's one of the smartest people I know, would never go. So I think he'd be a good person to have on to talk about this stuff. Anyway, uh, any other any other AMA questions? <laughs> well, comments, I want to. I found uh, a, a an apropos item in the syllabus of errors to demonstrate uh, Catholicism's relationship to nationalism in the state. So that the, the the format of the syllabus of errors is literally. He, the Pope lists every belief as though every every error in its own in its own right in such a way that and like this is wrong. So he he doesn't say like this is wrong. It's just basically it starts out saying all of the following are wrong colon and then so this item is the state <laughs> as being the origin and source of all rights is endowed with a certain right not circumscribed by any limits and that by implication he's saying is wrong is among the errors yeah yeah but anyway now that i've indoctrinated is, our which listeners is, which in, is, in, in old catholic encyclicals which is very much in but that's very much in um contrast with mussolini's definition of fascism and he had lots of definitions but among the most famous was everything within the state nothing outside of the state yes that's that would be on the syllabus of errors if Mussolini were yes. around then. Um, but uh, one of the other questions, I'm kind of combining them instead of uh, quoting them directly like I usually do. But there was there were a couple of questions about basically how to uh, good faith understandings of pe people and beliefs on the left. So like one of these was who on the left do you read or whom on the left do you read? And the other was what... Um, what issues do you think conservatives would benefit from at least understanding what the what what liberals are saying about them or to go even further perhaps where you think conservatives might be 
if not wrong, then currently misguided. I know we kind of ho- did a whole episode on this recently, but so many people are tired of that, but I'll let you take this where you want. Yeah, I mean, um, there's been a lot of interesting, there's been a lot of interesting responses to the episode with, with, with Jane Coaston. A whole bunch of people really loved it and a whole bunch of people really hated it. And, um, I have to say I'm sympathetic to some of the criticisms that have been leveled against it. And if I had listened to it as just a listener and there was somebody else having the same conversation I did, I would have wanted me to push back on more stuff. But, um, I was also trying to give Jane a fair hearing. And the, I think the, the, the net result is that we ended up talking past each other quite a bit. And, you know, if I had to do it over, I might do it a little differently, but more broadly, I don't know. Um, liberals that I read. I mean, people on the left that I read. Well, let, let's let's put that off for two seconds. I do think that conservatives, uh, particularly of a certain age, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why our discourse right now is so problematic on the right is that it is so dominated by over 60-year-old white, po- white people who have, or a lot of them are... <laughs> most of whom are like great, decent, wonderful people. And I'll see a great number of them at the Iowa state fair today, but they've already sort of been through their self sort and they've already, they know what they think. They have a certain amount of nostalgia for a country that they think they're losing. And there's an enormous amount of right-wing media that is set up, including with a lot of young people who are old people's ideas of what young people should be like, uh, that is set up to fuel this notion that they're losing their country and um and that that the the other side is determined to destroy everything that they hold dear and i don't think a lot of that withstands uh daylight when you actually sit down and have conversations with people on the left um who aren't sort of hardcore i mean there obviously are hardcore crazy people on the left who on college campuses and elsewhere um, some of them write for left-wing sites, uh, but they're doing their own version of fan service for an activated fan base that want to hear the reverse. That yeah, the the you know the the patriarchy is going away, white supremacy is going away. Everybody who disagrees with us is a racist or a sexist, and all the rest. And so I think there's that that one of the things I I, I think conservatives should do is move away from the noise machine stuff a bit. And I will plead guilty being have been part of some of that for a big chunk of my life and, and understand that, that most of the normal people who say vote Democrat aren't necessarily evil people <laughs> who want all of the bad things to happen. Um, true. And vice versa. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like, it's sort of like, um, you know, this is something that I thought a lot about when I was doing all the stuff about fascism. We have this, which gets us back to this sort of conspiracy thinking and enter- politics as entertainment stuff. Uh, the Nazis were so bad, right? I mean, they were just so evil. Big and true. Uh, and they owned, <laughs> they owned it so well, right? And then, they got, and then it became lionized um, in popular culture. And it was very, you know, and one of the reasons why it became such a strong, permanent, narrative is that it was one of the few things that the left and the right could agree upon. And when I say the left, I mean, everybody from, you know, Soviet propaganda on through, you know, normal liberals and everybody on the right as well. And, but the reality is that very few people are presented with a choice and say, okay, you're going to be the villain. You're going to be the bad guy. And you're going to be remembered for all of human history as the villain. I remember the early 1960s X-Men when they first started introducing Magneto and uh, and Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and these characters. They originally belonged to something called the League of Evil Mutants. <laughs> and I, I, it, it, is, it always comes into my head because the idea that people deliberately agree with the other side about what is good and evil and then they willingly choose to be the evil ones is so contrary to how life actually works. No one wants to be the villain. And in reality, most of the time, 
yeah, there are notions of objective truth. Seems to me that Jeffrey Epstein was a villain. Okay. Um, and we can was. come up with long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that version of Jeffrey Epstein was a villain. But there are, but in, in life, most normal people, particularly people who don't live and breathe politics every single day, their motives are for the most part good. Their desires for their families and their country are for the most part good. And I think if we could just move away from, as a broad thing, about always starting from the principle that the other side is evilly motivated, there would be a lot more progress out there. doesn't mean that the other side isn't wrong. But one can be wrong. One can be in error, and still be a good person. I think Saurabh Amari is in profound error, but I also think he's a good and decent person. Um, and I can make a long list of that of those kinds of people out there on the left and the right. And and this gets into one of these things that I think a lot of the left is really really bad about uh, when they talk about conservatives is that they never want to countenance the idea that. Some of the things that conservatives do, most of the things that conservatives do that are boneheaded or um, ill-advised, um, don't stem from the fact that they're evil. It's not like they screwed up, or you know, or they're incompetent, or they're stupid. I mean, I remember, you know, everyone when Trent Lott said that stuff about Strom Thurmond, the left was insistent. You know, it had to be because he really wanted to bring back the Klan and Jim Crow and all this kind of stuff. Like, no, he was talking about this, like, literally billion-year-old dude, <laughs> who, you know, at his birthday party. And he's, you know, and he, and Trent Lott was a hack from Mississippi. And, and he wanted to say something nice about this old man who, you know, was sitting there eating this jello. And so he says something stupid about how, you know, a uh, country would have been better off if, if Strom had won in, what was it, 48? Now, you know, look, taken literally, that's a really bad thing to say. But who, why, you know, why should we take it literally when it was so clearly not intended that way? And the left really wants to always paint the right as evilly motivated. And the right now always wants to paint the left as evilly motivated. And while there are definitely evil people out there, that doesn't explain 90% of the decisions people make. Um, in terms of people that, like, I read... I go back and forth about Jonathan Chait because I think sometimes he does bad faith stuff and then sometimes he's really on his game and does really good stuff. But I do think he's worth reading. Um, I think this is one of these things where you have to, where the important part about reading people you ideologically disagree with is just simply understanding that all you're trying to do is diversify your diet. You don't ha necessarily have to love it. I mean, I don't love kale, but every now and then it makes sense to eat some kale. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll read Peter Beinart, Marcus, we're old friends, even though lots of my friends on the right really can't stand him these days, particularly among the sort of pro-Israel crowd. And I don't want to get into all that. I generally try to stay away from a lot. I mean, E.J. Dion, I think his books are actually really useful and good. I'm less enamored with his column, but uh, I think E.J. is actually a really sweet, decent, smart guy um, who writes a column that is more of a partisan thing than the way his brain actually works. Uh, I don't know. I think Chuck Lane is great. We had him on the podcast. I'm always interested in what he has to say. He's fact-driven, um, and he's a serious person. But, you know, partly because I was working on that book for the last, you know, half decade, uh, most of the people on the left that are right were more academic, and they were focused on specific stuff rather than sort of the general punditry. And I do find it harder and harder to find sort of general left-wing or left-leaning opinion stuff that isn't close to as guilty or, more, or in often in many cases more guilty of the stuff that increasingly bothers me on the right. That's, again, why I kind of feel like a, you know, a remnant. We talk a lot on this podcast about how the remnant is, is sort of a, a breakaway thing from the right, or I should say we're holding still while the rest of the right breaks away. But we should every now and then, I think, emphasize the fact that the stuff that the left does is really infuriating and insane, too. And part of my critique of what's going on, on the right is that the right is surrendering to a lot of the categorical thinking of the left on identity politics, 
on statism, on trade and all of these kinds of things. And that bothers me because that's my family. Um, so it bothers me more. It's my, you know, my team. So it bothers me more. And I feel more obliged to speak up about it. But the left is, is, is losing its mind in terms of how it's buying into this idea that this is just an evil country that, you know, if, if Jane Coaston can ask, what if the right, what if the left was right about the right on race all along, which I think she's just flatly incorrect about, you could do the exact same question about the left and patriotism. The left, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you, if you wrote that the left has a problem with patriotism, that the left is, is flirting with being unpatriotic, you got destroyed. You got vilified. It used to be one of the most McCarthyite, horrible things that you could do is to question someone's patriotism. And now questioning patriotism is what the left, huge chunks of the left does, is that they don't want to buy into the idea that there's an American identity. They don't want to buy into the idea that this is a country to be proud of. They don't want to buy into the idea that this that, that our history warts and all is a story of great human progress and human flourishing and that we are still the last best hope of, of mankind. And they want to reject all of that stuff in the name of a cheap and tawdry identity politics. And so I, I think that's something that, that, that maybe we could talk about more on here. It just sounds in the, this context, the second you start criticizing the left, you get all of this asinine, oh yeah, but what about Trump? And I was like, well, I, you know, I, I personally, I've, I've checked that box, I think quite a bit. <laughs> And one of the things that, that bothers me is that the this stuff on the left is eliciting the stuff I don't like on the right. Yeah. All right. Um, Feed, vicious feedback uh, loop. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to find good people these days. All right. So we've gone on a long time here and I got to get back to the hotel and there's there's fried food I need. Um, <laughs> so we should probably wrap this up and we can save any of the if there are any good questions, we can save them for another time. But um Jack, I got to say, there's a lot of complaints on Twitter that there is not enough proof of life footage of um, or images of my dogs. And, you know, and while I feel for the Twitter people, um, I'm more concerned about me because, you know, my wife and I are deeply and gravely concerned about the well-being of our of our quadrupeds. So I think you need to up your game a little bit. Uh, I don't don't like dressing you down like this in public. I, I sent you something over the weekend. I don't think so. I? Not recently. Of of Zoe being needy. You sent me one text last. Week. Oh, maybe you did. Okay, but yeah, you know, like we, no, you know, it's like, uh, you know, as my wife always says, well, you know, when I worry that I'm doing too many jokes in my speeches, you know, Jess always says, look, no one ever left a speech saying, you know, that was pretty good, but I laughed too much. <laughs> um, crazy, crazy dog people. Um, never complain about getting too many updates about their dogs. Uh, I'm just putting it out there. All right, I'll work on it. And uh, uh, and uh, we have an exciting uh, podcast event coming up. Uh, I don't even say podcast event because that makes it sound like just some sort of thing where you show up and 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 you know do your two drink minimum. This is really a cross media event. Um, we are having pod on uh, John Podoritz. Uh, and it's going to be a special glop remnant crossover episode that we're going to record later this week. And, um, so anyway, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Please spread the word about this. It's really important. Please, you know, type in those promo codes for our sponsors. And, um, uh, Jack, I look forward to, um, seeing you in person. Well, I can't say I really look forward to seeing you in person, but, um, (laughs) Wow. Uh, I will see you next time on this podcast. Uh, no, you won't. This is a pod. <laughs> you're, you're really trying to throw me for a loop here. That's not going to work. I am. I am. Um, I think anyway. it did. Yeah, well, I still got it. Uh,
all right, I think we should just kind of do this like a phone call. Like, hey, Jack. Hey, Jonah. Kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Greetings from Iowa. Um, Is that where you are? That's where I currently am. Well, say, don't leave it in the green room. This is gold. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, you shouldn't have revealed to me where you are. Um, right. I'll just let you start whenever. Okay. Uh, 